0: Chapter 3 The Nature of True Repentance, Part 1 Next, I will show what gospel repentance is. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, and
1: by it a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients
0: 1. Sight of sin, 2. Sorrow for sin, 3. Confession of sin. 4. Shame for sin. 5. Hatred of sin. 6.
1: Turning from sin. If any of these ingredients is left
0: out, the medicine of repentance loses its effectiveness. Ingredient 1. Sight of sin. The first part of Christ's medicine is eye ointment.
1: Acts 26, verse 18. It is the great thing noted in the prodigal's repentance. He came to his senses. Luke 15, verse 17. He saw himself as a sinner and nothing but a sinner. Before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. Solomon, in his description of repentance, considers this to be the first ingredient. If they shall bethink themselves, 1 Kings 8, verse 47. A man must first see and recognize what his sin is, and must understand the poor condition of his heart before he can be appropriately humbled for it. The first creation God made was light. In the same way, the first thing that happens to a penitent is illumination. Now you are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 8. The eye is made both for seeing and for weeping. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept over. So I conclude that where we cannot see our own sin, there can be no repentance. Many who can spy faults in others see none in themselves. They cry that they have good hearts. Would it not be strange if two people lived together and ate and drank together? yet did not know each other. But this is how it is with a sinner. His body and soul live together and work together, but still he does not know himself. He does not know his own heart or what a hell he carries within him. Under a veil hides a deformed face. People are veiled over with ignorance and self-love. They do not see what deformed souls they have. The devil does with them what the falconer does with a hawk. He blindfolds them, so they cannot see that he is carrying them to hell. A sword will be on his right eye. Zechariah 11:17. Men have plenty of insight into worldly matters, but the eye of their mind is blinded. They do not see any evil in sin. The sword is on their
0: right eye. Ingredient number two: Sorrow for sin. I admit my guilt. Psalm 38, verse 18. Ambrose calls
1: sorrow the embittering of the soul. The Hebrew word for "to be sorrowful" means something akin to having the soul crucified. This must happen in true repentance. They will look at me whom they pierced, and they will mourn. Zechariah 12, verse 10. As if they themselves felt the nails of the cross sticking into their sides. A woman may as well expect to have a child without pain as one can have repentance without sorrow. If anyone can believe without doubting, be suspicious of his faith and if any one can repent without sorrow, be suspicious of his repentance. Martyrs shed blood for Christ, and penitents shed tears for sin. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping. Luke 7, verse 38. The sorrow of the woman's heart in this verse ran out of her eyes. The bronze basin for the priests to wash in. Exodus 30, verse 18. Symbolized a double washing. The bath of Christ's blood we must wash in by faith, and the bath of tears we must wash in by repentance. A true penitent strives to work his heart into a position of sorrow. He blesses God when he can weep. He is glad for a rainy day, for he knows that it is a repentance that he will have no reason to regret. The bread of sorrow may be bitter to the taste but it strengthens the heart, Psalm 104, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. This sorrow for sin is not superficial. It is a deep and holy agony. In Scripture it is called a breaking of the heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart, Psalm 51, verse 17, and a tearing of the heart. Carry your heart, Joel two verse thirteen. The expressions of slapping on the thigh, Jeremiah thirty one verse nineteen, beating on the chest, Luke eighteen verse thirteen, wearing of sackcloth, Isaiah twenty two verse twelve, and pulling out hair, Ezra nine verse three. All these
0: are simply outward signs of inward sorrow. This sorrow has several effects. 1. To make
1: Christ precious. How a troubled soul will treasure a Savior. Now Christ is Christ indeed, and mercy is mercy indeed. Until the heart is full of remorse, it is not ready for Christ.
0: How welcome is a doctor to a man who is bleeding from his wounds. 2. To drive out sin. Sin breeds sorrow and sorrow kills sin.
1: Holy sorrow brings a sort of spiritual nausea, leading one to purge the sickness of the soul. It is said that the tears of vine branches are good for curing leprosy. Certainly, the tears that drop from the penitent are good for curing the leprosy of sin. 3. To Make Way for Solid Comfort those who sow in tears shall harvest with joyful shouting. Psalm 126, verse 5. The penitent has a wet planting season, but a delicious harvest. Repentance breaks the abscess of sin, and then the soul can rest easy. Hannah, after weeping, went away and was no longer sad. 1 Samuel 1, verse 18 the way god troubles the soul for sin is like the way the angel troubled the pool john 5 verse 4 which made way for healing but not all sorrow is evidence of true repentance there is as much difference between true and false sorrow as between water in the spring which is sweet and water in the sea which is salty the apostle speaks of sorrowing according to the will of god 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. But what is this godly sorrowing?
0: There are six qualifications for it. 1. True godly sorrow is inward. It is inward in two ways. First, it is a sorrow of the heart. The sorrow of
1: hypocrites lies only in their faces. They distort their faces, Matthew 6 verse 16 they make a sour face but their sorrow goes no further like the dew that wets the leaf but does not soak to the root ahab's repentance was an outward show his clothes were torn but not his spirit 1 kings 21 verse 27 godly sorrow goes deep like a vein that bleeds inwardly the heart bleeds for sin they were pierced to the heart acts two verse thirty seven as the heart takes a prominent role in sinning, it must also do so in sorrowing. Second, it is a sorrow for sins of the heart, the first outbreaks and risings of sin. Paul grieved for the law in his body romans seven verse twenty three The true mourner weeps for the stirrings of pride and lust. He grieves for the root of bitterness, even if it never blossoms into action. A wicked man may be troubled by the
0: scandalous acts of sin. A real convert laments sins of the heart. 2. Godly Sorrow is Genuine It is sorrow for the offense rather than
1: for the punishment. God's law has been broken, His love
0: abused. This melts the soul into tears. A man may be sorry, yet not repentant, like a
1: thief who is sorry when he is arrested, not because he stole, but because he must pay the penalty. Hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequence of sin. I have read of a fountain that only sends forth streams on the evening before a famine. In the same way, hypocrites' eyes never pour out tears except when God's judgments are approaching. Pharaoh was more troubled by the frogs and the river of blood than by his sin. Godly sorrow, however, is grief for the transgression against God. Even if there were no conscience to strike, no devil to accuse, and no hell to punish, still the soul would be grieved because of the offense against God. My sin is constantly before me. Psalm 51, verse three. David does not say, "The sword of punishment is constantly before me, but my sin, that I should offend so good a God, that I should cause my comfort or pain. This breaks my heart. Godly sorrow shows itself to be genuine because even when a Christian knows that he is out of range of the gunshot of hell. And will never be damned. He still grieves for sinning against the free grace
0: that has pardoned him. 3. Godly sorrow is founded on faith. It is intermixed with faith.
1: The boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Mark 9, verse 24. Here, sorrow for sin was colored by faith as we have seen a bright rainbow appear in a watery cloud. Spiritual sorrow will sink the heart if the pulley of faith does not raise it. Just as our sin is constantly before us, so God's promise must be constantly before us. Whenever we feel the sting of sin, we must look up to Christ, our bronze serpent. Some have faces so swollen with worldly grief that they can barely see weeping like this is not good if it blinds the eye of faith. If there is no dawning of faith in
0: the soul, then it is not the sorrow of humility, but of despair. 4. Godly Sorrow is a Great Sorrow. In that day there will be great mourning in
1: Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon, Zechariah 12, verse 11. Two sons set that day when Josiah died, and there was a funeral and great mourning. Sorrow for sin must be boiled up to such great heights as these, or sighings
0: from the bottom of one's heart. Question 1. Do all have the same degree of sorrow? Answer. No. Reckoning with sin does produce greater
1: and lesser sorrows. In the new birth, all have labor pains, but some have sharper pains than others. Some are naturally of a more rugged disposition, of higher spirits, and are not easily brought to their knees. These people must experience greater humiliation, as a naughty piece of timber must have larger wedges driven into it. Some have been more heinous offenders, and their sorrow must be suitable to their sin. Some patients have their sores let out with a needle, others with a scalpel. Those who have sinned in the extreme must be more bruised with the hammer of the law. Some are designed and cut out for higher service, to be eminently instrumental for God and these people must be humbled in a more powerful way. Those whom God intends to be pillars in His church must experience more intense and painful shaping. Paul, the Prince of the Apostles, who was to be God's flag-bearer to carry His name before the Gentiles and kings, was to have his heart more deeply pierced by repentance. Question 2. But how great must sorrow for sin be in all? Answer, it must be as great as for any worldly loss. They will look at Me whom they pierced, and they will mourn for Him like one mourning for an only son." Zechariah 12, verse 10. Sorrow for sin must surpass worldly sorrow. We must grieve more for offending God than even for the death of loved ones. Therefore, on that day the Lord God of armies called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Isaiah 22, verse 12. This was for sin, but in the case of the burial of the dead, we find God prohibiting tears and shaving the head. Jeremiah 22, verse 10, 16, verse 6. This indicates that sorrow for sin must exceed sorrow at the grave and with good reason, for in the burial of the dead it is only a friend who departs, but in sin God departs. Sorrow for sin should be so great that it swallows up all other sorrow, as when the pain of a kidney stone and a scraped knee meet, the pain of the stone swallows up the pain of the scrape. We should find as much bitterness in weeping for sin as we ever found sweetness in committing it. Surely David found more bitterness in repentance than he ever found comfort in Bathsheba. Our sorrow for sin must make us willing to let go of even those sins that brought us the greatest profit or delight. The medicine for sorrow shows itself to be strong enough when it has purged out our disease the Christian has arrived at a sufficient measure of sorrow when the love of sin is purged out. 5. Godly sorrow, in some cases, is joined with restitution. Anyone who has wronged others by unjust or fraudulent dealing should in good conscience offer repayment. There is an express law for this. He shall confess his sin which he has committed and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it a fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. Numbers 5, verse 7. In a similar way, Zacchaeus made restitution. If I have extorted anything from anyone, I am giving back four times as much. Luke 19, verse 8. When Salimus, the great Muslim, lay upon his deathbed, he was urged by Pyrrhus to take the wealth he had stolen from the Persian merchants and give it to charity. But Salimus commanded instead that it should be sent back to the rightful owners. Should a Christian's creed not be better than a Muslim's Koran? It is a bad sign when a man on his deathbed bequeaths his soul to God, but his ill-gotten goods to his friends. I can hardly imagine that God will receive his soul. Augustine said, Without restitution, no remission. And it was said by old
0: Latimer, If you restore not goods unjustly gotten, ye shall cough in hell. Question 1. Suppose
1: a person has wronged someone financially, and the wronged man is dead. What should he do? Answer let him restore his ill-gotten gains to that man's heirs and successors. If none of them are living, let him restore them to God. That is, let him put his unjust gain into God's treasury by giving it to the poor. Question 2. What if the party who did the wrong is dead? Answer. Then they who are his heirs should make restitution. Listen to what I say. If there are any who have inherited wealth, and they know that the parties who passed down that wealth had defrauded others and died with that guilt on them, then the heirs or executors who possess that wealth are bound by conscience to make restitution. Otherwise, they bring the curse of God upon their family. Question 3. If a man has wronged another and is not able to restore, what should he do? Answer let him deeply humble himself before God, promising full satisfaction to the wronged party if the Lord should make him able, and God will accept the will for the deed.
0: 6. Godly Sorrow is Abiding A few tears shed in a passion will not
1: suffice. Some will fall down weeping at a sermon. But it is like an April shower that is quickly over or like a vein that is opened and soon stopped again. True sorrow must be a habit. O Christian, the disease of your soul is chronic and frequently afflicts you, so you must be continually medicating yourself with repentance. This is the sorrow that is according to the will of God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 those who never had any of this godly sorrow are so far from repentance. Such are, a. the Romans Catholics, who leave out the very soul of repentance, boiling its work down to fasting, penance, and pilgrimages, in which there is nothing of spiritual sorrow. They torture their bodies, but their hearts are not torn. What is this but the carcass of repentance? b. Carnal Protestants who are strangers to godly sorrow. They cannot endure a serious thought, and they prefer not to trouble their heads about sin. Paracelsus spoke of an illness some have that will cause them to die in a frenzy of dancing. In the same way, sinners spend their days in mirth. They fling away sorrow and go dancing to damnation. Some have lived many years. Yet never put one teardrop in God's bottle, nor do they know what a broken heart means. They weep and wring their hands as if they were undone, when their wealth and legacies are gone, but they have no agony of soul for sin. There is a twofold sorrow: first, a rational sorrow which happens when the soul realizes the problem of sin and chooses any torture rather than to admit to it. And second, a sensitive sorrow, which is expressed by many tears. The first of these is to be found in every child of God. But the second, which is a sorrow that runs from the eyes in tears, not all will experience. Yet it is very commendable to see a repentant sinner weeping. Christ considers the tender hearted to be great beauties and it is good for sin to make us weep. We usually weep for the loss of something good. By sin, we have lost the very favor of God. If Micah wept for the loss of a false god, saying, You have taken away my gods which I made, what more do I have? Judges 18 verse 24, then we should certainly weep for our sins which have taken away the true God from us. Some may ask the question of whether our repentance and sorrow must always be alike. Although repentance must be always kept alive in the soul, there are two special times when we must renew our repentance in an extraordinary way. One, before receiving the Lord's Supper. In the same way that the Passover meal is to be eaten with bitter herbs, our spiritual meal should come with bitter sorrow. Our eyes should be freshly wet with tears, and the stream of sorrow should overflow. A repenting posture is a sacramental posture. A broken heart and a broken Christ go together well. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we will taste in Christ. When Jacob wept, he found God. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. Genesis 32, verse 30. The way to find Christ comfortably in the sacrament is to approach the table weeping. Christ will say to a humble penitent what he said to Thomas Take your hand and put it into my side. John 20, verse 27.
0: And let my bleeding wounds heal you. 2. At the hour of death. This
1: should be a weeping season. It is the time to do our last work for heaven, and our best wine of tears should be saved for such a time. We should repent now that we have sinned so much and wept so little, that God's bag of sin has been so full and His bottle of tears so empty. Job 14, verse 17. We should repent now that we have repented no sinner, That the fortresses of our hearts held out so long against God before they were leveled by repentance. We should repent now that we have not loved Christ more, that we have not learned more virtue from him and brought more glory to him. It should be our grief on our deathbed that our lives have had so many blanks and blots in them, that our duties have been so tainted by sin, that our obedience has been so imperfect. That we have been so weak in the ways of God. When the soul is going out of the body, it should
0: swim to heaven on a sea of tears. Ingredient 3 Confession of Sin. Sorrow is a passion so vehement that it must be released. It is
1: vented at the eyes by weeping, and at the tongue by confession. The descendants of Israel stood and confessed their sins. Nehemiah 9 verse 2. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. Hosea 5 verse 15. It is a metaphor alluding to a mother who, when she is angry, goes away from the child and hides her face till the child acknowledges his or her fault and asks for forgiveness. Gregory Nazianzen calls confession a salve for a wounded soul. Confession is self-accusing. Behold, it is I who have sinned, Second Samuel 24, verse 17. This is not the same in human conflict. No man is ready to accuse himself, but instead waits to hear from his accuser. When we come before God, however, we must accuse ourselves. And the truth is that by this self-accusing we prevent Satan's accusations. In our confessions, We charge ourselves with pride, infidelity, and passion, so that when Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren, charges us with these offenses, God will say, They have accused themselves already. Therefore, Satan, your accusations come too late. The humble sinner does more than accuse himself. In effect, he sits in judgment and passes sentence upon himself he confesses that he has deserved to be turned over to the wrath of God. And hear what the apostle Paul says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 31. But have not wicked men like Judas and Saul confessed sin? Yes, but theirs was not a true confession. If confession of sin is to be right and genuine, these eight qualifications must be met. 1. Confession must be voluntary. It must come freely, like water out of a spring. The confession of the wicked is extorted, like the confession of a man being tortured. When a spark of God's wrath flies into their conscience, or they are in fear of death, then they will resort to confessions. Balaam, when he saw the angel's naked sword, could say, I have sinned. Numbers 22, verse 34. But true confession drops freely from the lips, like myrrh from the tree or honey from the comb. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Luke 15, verse 18.
0: The prodigal charged himself with sin before his father charged him with it. 2. Confession must come with remorse. The heart must deeply grieve it.
1: An unsaved man's confessions run through him like water through a pipe. They do not affect him at all. But true confession leaves heart-wounding impressions on a man. David's soul was burdened in the confession of his sins. Like a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me.
0: Psalm 38, verse 4. It is one thing to confess sin and another thing to feel sin. 3.
1: Confession must be sincere. Our hearts must go along with our confessions. The hypocrite confesses sin but loves it, like a thief who confesses to stolen goods, yet loves stealing. How many confess pride and covetousness with their lips, but still roll them like honey under their tongue? Augustine said that before his conversion he confessed sin and begged power against it, but his heart whispered within him, Not yet, Lord. He was afraid to leave his sin too soon. A good Christian is more honest. His heart keeps pace with his tongue.
0: He is convinced of the sins he confesses, and he hates the sins he is convinced of. 4. In true confession, a man confesses specific sins.
1: A wicked man acknowledges he is a sinner in general. He confesses sin as a whole. His confession of sin is much like Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. I had a dream, but he could not understand it. In the same way, a wicked man says, Lord, I have sinned, but does not know what the sin is, or at least he does not remember it. But a true convert acknowledges his particular sins. Like a wounded man who comes to the doctor and shows him all his wounds, here I was cut in the head, here I was shot in the arm. So a mournful sinner confesses the many specific ailments of his soul. Israel drew up a specific charge against themselves We have served the Baals. Judges 10, verse 10 the prophet recites the very sin that brought a curse with it. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Daniel 9 verse 6. When we diligently inspect our hearts, we may find some particular sin indulged. Point out that sin with a tear. 5. A True Penitent Confesses Sinfulness from Birth He acknowledges the pollution of his nature. The sin of our nature is not only a lack of good, but also a presence of evil. It is like rust to iron or stain to scarlet. David acknowledges his birth sin. I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51 verse 5. We are ready to charge many of our first sins to Satan's temptations, but this sin of our nature is entirely from ourselves. We cannot shift it off to Satan. We have a root within us that bears poisonous fruit and wormwood. Deuteronomy 29 verse 18 Our nature is an abyss and breeding ground of evil, the source of all the scandals that infest the world. It is this depravity of nature that poisons our holy things. It is this that brings on God's judgments and blocks His mercies from reaching our hearts. 6. Sin is to be confessed with all its circumstances and aggravations. Sins committed under the gospel horizon are firmly ingrained. Confess sins against knowledge against grace, against vows, against experiences, against judgments. The anger of God arose against them and killed some of their strongest ones. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Psalm 78, verses 31-32. These are circumstances that accent
0: and enhance our sins. 7. In confession we must charge ourselves in order to clear God.
1: Even if the Lord is severe in His actions and unsheathes His bloody sword, still we must acquit Him and acknowledge that He has done us no wrong. Nehemiah, in his confessing of sin, vindicates God's righteousness. However, you are righteous in everything that has happened to us. Nehemiah 9 verse 33. Meridius, the emperor, when he saw his wife killed before his eyes by focus, cried out, Righteous art thou, O Lord, in all thy ways. 8. We must confess our sins with a resolution not to commit them again. Some run straight from the confessing of sin to the committing of sin, like the Persians who have one day in the year when they kill serpents, and after that day allow them to swarm again. In the same way, many seem to kill their sins in their confessions, and then immediately let them grow back as fast as ever. Stop doing evil, Isaiah one verse sixteen. It is worthless to confess we have done things we ought not to have done, but then continue doing them. Pharaoh confessed he had sinned, Exodus nine verse twenty seven, but when the thunder stopped, he fell into his sin again. He sinned again and hardened his heart. Exodus 9, verse Origen calls confession the vomit of the soul, by which the conscience is eased of the burden it was carrying. Now, when we have vomited up sin by confession, we must not return to this vomit. What king will pardon a man who, after he has confessed his treason, practices
0: new treason? There are several qualifications for confession. Use number one. Is confession a
1: necessary ingredient in repentance? Here is a bill of indictment against four kinds of people. One, it admonishes those who hide their sins as Rachel hid her father's idols under her saddle. Genesis 31 verse 34. Many would rather have their sins covered than cured. They do with their sins what they do with their idols. They draw a curtain over them, or as some do with their illegitimate children, they smother them. But even if men have no tongue to confess, God has an eye to see. He will unmask their treason. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. Psalm 50 verse 21 Those sins that men hide in their hearts will one day be written on their foreheads as with the point of a diamond. Those who will not confess their sin as David did, that they may be pardoned, will confess their sin as Achan did, that they may be stoned. It is dangerous to take advice from the devil. One who conceals his wrongdoings will not prosper. Proverbs 28 verse 13. It admonishes those who do confess sin, but only confess it by halves. They do not confess all of it. They confess the pennies, but not the dollars. They confess vain thoughts or a faulty memory, but not the sins they are most guilty of, such as rash anger, extortion, or uncleanness. Like Plutarch, who complained that his stomach was not very good, when in reality his lungs were bad and his liver rotten. But if we do not confess all of it, how can we expect that God will pardon all of it? It is true that we cannot know the exact catalogue of our sins, but the sins we are conscious of, and which our hearts accuse us of, must be confessed, if we ever hope for mercy. 3. It admonishes those who in their confessions minimize and rationalize their sins. A gracious soul strives to make the worst of his sins but hypocrites try to make the best of them. They do not deny they are sinners, but they do what they can to lessen their sins. They indeed offend sometimes, but it is their nature, and at such occasions are few and far between. These are excuses rather than confessions. I have sinned, for I have violated the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people. 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. Here Saul blames his sin on the people. They wanted him to spare the sheep and oxen. It was an apology, not a self indictment. This runs in the blood. Adam acknowledged that he had tasted the forbidden fruit, but instead of admitting and grieving his sin, he transferred guilt from himself to God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree. And I ate. Genesis 3, verse 12. That is, if I had not had this woman to be a tempter, I would not have transgressed. It is a bad sin indeed that has no excuse, as it must be a very coarse wool that will take no dye. How ready we are to pare down our sin, to look at it through the small end of the telescope, so that it appears as nothing but a cloud as small as a person's hand. 1 Kings 18, verse 44. 4. It admonishes those who are so far from confessing sin that they boldly argue in favor of their sin. Instead of having tears to lament it, they use arguments to defend it. If their sin is rage, they will justify it. I have good reason to be angry. Jonah 4, verse 9. If it be covetousness, they will vindicate it. When men commit sin, they are the devil's servants. When they plead for it, they are the devil's attorneys, and he will pay them for their work. Use 2. Let us show ourselves to be truly repentant by sincere confession of sin. The thief on the cross made a confession of his sin. We indeed are suffering justly. Luke 23, verse 41. And Christ said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. This may be what led to that saying of Augustine's that confession of sin shuts the mouth of hell and opens the gate of paradise. So that we may make a free and genuine confession of sin, let us consider 1. Holy confession gives glory to God. My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. Joshua 7 verse 19, KJV. A humble confession exalts God. What a glory it is to Him that out of our own mouths He does not condemn us. When we confess sin, God's patience is magnified in sparing us, and His free grace is exalted in saving such sinners. 2. Confession is a means to humble the soul. He who considers himself a hell-deserving sinner will have little room in his heart for pride. Like the violet, he will hang his head down in humility. A true penitent confesses that he mingles sin with all he does, and therefore has nothing to boast of. Uzziah, though he was a king, had leprosy on his forehead. He had enough to humble him, Second 2 Chronicles 26.19. In the same way, a child of God, even when he does good, still acknowledges that there
0: is evil in his good. This lays all his feathers of pride in the dust. 3. Confession gives
1: release to a troubled heart. When guilt lies boiling in the conscience, confession gives relief. It is like the lancing of an abscess, which gives ease to the patient. 4. Confession purges out sin. Augustine called it the expeller of vice. Confession is like the dung gate through which all the filth of the city was carried forth, Nehemiah three verse thirteen. Confession is like pumping at the sight of a leak; it pumps out that sin that would otherwise flood the house. Confession is the sponge that wipes the dirty spots off the soul. Five. Confession of sin teaches the value of Christ to the soul. If I say I am a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me? After Paul has confessed a litany of sins, he breaks forth in gratitude to Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7 verse 25. If a debtor confesses a judgment, but the creditor will not require repayment of the debt, but instead appoints his own son to pay it, will the debtor not be very thankful? In the same way, when we confess our debt and know that we cannot repay it, even though we should forever lie in hell, how thankful we can be that God should appoint his own son to lay down his blood for the payment of our debt. How free grace is magnified, and
0: Jesus Christ eternally loved and admired six. Confession of sin makes way for pardon. No
1: sooner did the prodigal come with a confession in his mouth I have sinned against heaven, than his father's heart melted towards him, and he kissed him. Luke fifteen verses twenty through twenty one. When David said I have sinned, the prophet brought him a box with a pardon. The Lord also has allowed your sin to pass. Second Samuel 12, verse 13. He who sincerely confesses sin has God's promise of a pardon. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, so that he will forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, verse 9. Why does the Apostle not say that if we confess, he is merciful to forgive our sins? No. His forgiveness displays justice, because he has bound himself by promise to forgive in this way. God's truth and justice are at work for the pardoning of any man who confesses sin, and comes with a repentant heart by faith in Christ. 7. How reasonable and easy is this command that we should confess sin? First it is a reasonable command, for if one has wronged another, what is more rational than to confess he has wronged him? And we have wronged God by sin. How equal and fitting it is that we confess the offense. Second, it is an easy command. What a vast difference there is between the first covenant and the second. The first covenant said, If you commit sin, you die. The second covenant says, If you confess sin, you will have mercy. In the first covenant, no certainty was allowed. Under the covenant of grace, if we simply confess the debt, Christ will be our certainty. Could there be a simpler method for the salvation of man than a humble confession? Only acknowledge your wrongdoing. Jeremiah 3, verse 13. God says to us, I do not ask for sacrifices of rams to alleviate your guilt. I do not ask you to part with the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul. Only acknowledge your wrongdoing. Simply draw up an indictment against yourself and plead guilty. And you will be sure of mercy. All this should make this duty a pleasant one. Throw out the poison of sin by confession, and this day is salvation come to thy house.
0: Luke 19, verse 9, KJV. There is still one case of conscience left. Are we required
1: to confess our sins to other people? The Roman Catholics insist upon this type of confession. One must confess his sins in the ear of the priest, or he cannot be absolved. They urge, confess your sins to one another, James 5.16, but this scripture has little relevance to their purpose. It may as well mean that the priest should confess to the people as well as the people to the priest. Confession to a priest is one of the Pope's golden doctrines. Like the fish in the Gospels, it has money in its mouth. When you open its mouth, you will find a coin matthew seventeen verse twenty seven but Though I am not for confession to men in the Roman Catholic sense, yet I think in three cases, there should be confession to men: first, where a person has fallen into scandalous sin and by it has been a cause of offence to some and of falling to others, he should make a solemn and open acknowledgment of his sin. So that his repentance may be as visible as his scandal. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 Second, where a man has confessed his sin to God, but his conscience is still burdened and his mind is still uneasy, it is very reasonable that he should confess his sins to a wise and godly friend, who may advise him and speak a word in due season. James 5, verse 16. It is a sinful modesty in Christians that they are not more open with their ministers and other spiritual friends in unburdening themselves and opening the pains and troubles of their souls to them. If there is a thorn sticking in the conscience, it is good to turn to those who may help pull it out. Third, where any man has slandered another and tarnished his name, he is required to make confession. The scorpion carries its poison in its tail, and the slanderer carries it in his tongue. His words pierce deeply, like the quills of the porcupine. One who has murdered another's good name or by bearing false witness has damaged him financially ought to confess his sin and ask forgiveness. If you are presenting your offering at the altar, And there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. How can this reconciliation be made but by confessing the injury? Until this is done, God will accept none of your services. Do not think the holiness of the altar will privilege you. Your praying and hearing are in vain until you have made
0: things right with your brother by confessing your fault to him.